0: Welcome and thank you for joining us for this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. This podcast is part of a series focused on sharing information with healthcare providers who are caring for patients during the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Hi, this is Dr. Erin Mikos. I'm the Director of Women's Cardiovascular Health and the Associate Director of Preventive Cardiology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And this is our American Heart Association podcast focusing on heart disease in this COVID 19 pandemic. In this episode, we're gonna describe the link between cardiovascular disease and its risk factors with COVID 19. We're gonna talk about some solutions to help with continuity of care for these high risk patients during this unprecedented time. Um, We're particularly gonna address the big changes in physical and and social distancing and how that impacts cardiac rehab, talk about disruptions to continuity of care and uh, potential solutions for that. And finally, we'll discuss some actions that can be put forward to address this and future crises. Welcome to our American Heart Association podcast, focusing on heart disease in this COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm very pleased today to have Dr. Amit Kara join me. Dr. Kara is a professor of medicine and director of preventive cardiology at the UT Southwestern Medical Center. And he's also the president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. Welcome, Amit.
0: Hi, Erin. Uh, so good to be with you. And I'm, I'm really excited about this topic today. It's something you and I have discussed uh, outside of this podcast uh, previously. And, and what an important topic! Um, maybe I'll start a question for you. Um, as you know, well, we're, we're all getting deluged with, with information here, but one consistent signal is that, you know, people with um, cardiovascular conditions, uh, those with cardiovascular disease seem to be at higher risk, not only for, um, getting COVID infection, but, um, succumbing to some of the morbidity and mortality from it. Tell us a little bit about what we know so far.
1: Yeah. So thank you, Amit. So although you know, COVID-19 stems from a viral infection, you know, its interaction with cardiology, both upstream and downstream, is really intertwined because we know that patients with diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and pre-existing cardiovascular disease have a markedly poor prognosis and a greater risk of dying from COVID independent of age. You know, we saw from data from China that while their overall mortality was three to four percent, The mortality was significantly higher among those with cardiovascular disease, where it was around 11%. Patients with diabetes had a 7% mortality and a 6% mortality with hypertension. And this is really worrisome considering that there's Americans who live with coronary heart disease or heart failure and stroke and 118 million with hypertension. And I'm particularly worried because we have such a high prevalence of obesity in the United States with about 42% of Americans meet criteria for obesity. And in the U.S., obesity is turning out to be a particularly strong marker of bad outcomes in COVID. Um, We saw from the New York City experience that for individuals under the age of 60 who have COVID, those with a BMI of 30 to 34 or greater than 35, they were two to four times more likely to be admitted to the critical care unit than individuals who had a BMI less than 30. And this is likely because obesity can lead to restrictive lung function and patients may have dysregulated immune response and propensity for thrombosis and other impairments in cardiovascular reserve. So it's really important for all of us in these critical times to keep cardiovascular prevention as our top uh, public health priority, not only for this current crisis, but for future outbreaks Um, In addition to preventing outcomes related to COVID-19, we just can't ignore usual cardiovascular care so that we don't see a tsunami of um, complications um, due to interruptions in, in chronic care. We need to make sure we're accessible to our patients during this challenging time. Along that line, I actually wanted to ask you, um, you know, we have seen so much disruptions in our outpatient care and care in general for those at high cardiovascular risk. And so I wanted to know what you think, um, what are the aspects that concern you the most about care for these individuals?
0: Well, you know, I think you framed it very well here, first and foremost, uh, increased risk in patients um, with risk factors and with cardiovascular disease. And you know, the the, the the thing is, is that when this first started, the COVID pandemic here, especially in the United States, that appropriately we were focused on the inpatient acute care. and There's been some great um, literature coming out to help guide us in that regard. But, you know, now that this is unfortunately becoming a little bit the new normal and, and we now have to figure out, um, you know, how to, how to think about broader aspects of care, we're realizing that there may be the second and third waves of these people who um, have these chronic conditions and you know there may be disruptions in their care, and the implications of that are now becoming front and center, which is part of the purpose of this podcast. And you know there are a few things that concern me. First, is you you know well, there's been several reports about patients not presenting for care. We know, particularly with cardiovascular emergencies, heart attacks, uh, strokes, that there's a potential for patients to be scared to present for care, um, that they may themselves get COVID, or that hospitals can't accommodate them, and you know, that was theoretical, but now we're actually seeing good data for that. As many saw that article last week, where they showed that in nine centers compiling their data year over year, there's a 30% lower STEMI activation. So either we're not having STEMIs or patients aren't presenting. And I think it's the latter, you know, another study out of Singapore showed that when, you know, patients now presenting, if you showed up, I mean, they were having significant delays um, compared to historic controls. Their first symptom to medical contact was about 300 minutes compared to 80 minutes. So we're really worried that patients are not getting care when they need it. And that is such an important take home from this is that we should strongly encourage our patients. We're we're generally open for business in most places and patients should not delay their care. You know, a couple other aspects, I know we're we're going to delve into this in a second, but, you know, which is um, disruptions in usual care. We're so used to having outpatient practices and ambulatory care and regular follow-up where patients can get their preventive needs addressed, mentioned symptoms. And you know, right now most places aren't doing outpatient medicine. It's all telehealth at this point. And we'll talk more about that. But we really worry about these disruptions and access to people's providers and how that may impact preventive care and addressing symptoms. And then you know a few other offshoots from that. Um, we're worried about medication access. Uh, we know that pharmacies, you know, elderly people who can't, you know, are scared to go out and still many are going to the pharmacies and getting exposure. So we worry about continued access, including supply lines around that. Um, and then finally I should say that the, the next wave, not to not to go too far beyond this, but you know a lot of people are are losing their, their jobs unfortunately. And that means they're going to lose health insurance and we worry about that. And particularly uh, vulnerable populations in, you know, in in, in uh, Chicago, 70, 75% of the mortality is in, in African Americans and they only make up 30% of the population. So we really worry about it particularly different vulnerable and special populations in this milieu. So, you know, that's the sad news. I'm going to maybe pivot back to you. I, I know you've thought about this. What are what are some of the solutions here? What are some of the ways that we can preserve continuity of care for these high-risk individuals?
1: Yeah, well, if there's any silver lining in this crisis, I actually think it is the rapid adoption of telemedicine. I mean, we've always had health technology in cardiology, but this Novel context has really boosted implementation and I think it's here to stay. Um, This is really helped by the expanded coverage with CMS widening its reach and you know you and I both do preventive cardiology and I think this is particularly suited for telemedicine um, where we can monitor a lot of these risk factors remotely with less of a need for physical exam. But So I think telemedicine will make it easier for us to check in on our high risk in, in practice. Uh, you know, For me, who used to have clinic at a satellite location, that's been easier for me to squeeze in patients here and there on my non-clinic days because I can do it remotely and um, you know, even from home, which has helped. But to make these clinical encounters meaningful, you know, patients need to prep too for these appointments. So patients with chronic cardiovascular disease and risk factors, I recommend they really invest in a, a good quality home blood pressure monitor and a scale. And we to you know, train patients um, you know, how to self-evaluate, how to monitor their vitals, their blood pressure, their weights, how to recognize concerning symptoms, and you know, to be able to adjust their medications and to how to get in touch with their um, healthcare practitioners. And overall, I'm actually really optimistic that this new scenario is, is gonna be a, actually an invaluable opportunity to enhance patient empowerment for them to take ownership in their own cardiovascular care This patient-centered approach. I mean, we're literally coming into their homes with those telemedicine uh, visits. Um, But, uh, you know, you mentioned some of the hardships, uh, you know, for patients needing to maintain uh, adequate supplies of their chronic medications, perhaps utilizing mail-order pharmacies more than uh, before, um, and just to make sure that they have their supplies without going out. And we really need to we're going to need to adapt some of our regimens to patient financial hardships during this e- economic downturn. And this may be, um, you know, being thoughtful about the medications we prescribe and trying to choose ones that are, um, you know, generic and lower cost, and, and making sure everything that we prescribe uh, has value and, and, and meaning because it's uh, money is going to be be tight. But I actually really hope that telemedicine is here to stay. It's really enhanced my. Um, practice, uh, I'm able to actually check in on patients much more easily, uh, which I think will be a good way that instead of an annual visit once a year in a traditional clinic, that we can actually keep an eye on them much more frequently and be able to adjust their risk factors uh, much more closely. But you know know that a team-based care model is a really effective care for model prevention. I know we've involved our preventive cardiology nurse with checking in on some of our patients, um, and so it seems that a team-based care would have even more additional value during this time of crisis. and so I wanted to ask you amit, what are some additional ways that you are using um, or suggest using to leverage the uh, team-based approach to cardiovascular care
0: Yeah you know thanks I think that's that's really important and let me just add to your you know your points about optimism and I, I will say you know anecdotally in the you know the telehealth that we've been doing I've really enjoyed it I think to your point about Um, seeing people's homes and and they're seeing us in different environments, it it creates a different feel. Um, I I do think there'll be some new practices that come out of this that'll be innovative as it relates to healthcare. And I'm I'm optimistic that it's unfortunate we're in this situation, but we'll we'll take some new learnings about how to interact with patients. And, you know, when it comes to team-based care, first as as you and I both preventive cardiologists, you know, team-based care is sort of um, part and parcel of what we do. Um, we, we, you know, the, we always say, you know, there's no way to do prevention without a team. And, and so, you know, thinking about how to leverage the team a little bit better, I'll, I'll maybe give some examples. First, I, I think about the pharmacists, you know, uh, we talked a little bit about barriers to access. And um, we also know that, for example, some, some more, you know, generic type drugs about setting up protocols in the hospital for um, or our clinic for routine um, extended refills, Helping patients navigate, getting uh, mail order things like that, so facilitating that. There's also some other points when it comes to barriers for medicines like PCSK9 or ones that require prior authorization. There's obviously still some silly things about needing labs every year, and people can't go to the lab right now. So helping navigate those. Of course, our uh, uh, advanced practice professionals, our our nurse practitioners, and 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 um, physicians assistants are integral. And you know, in many places it's different. Of course, in New York, it's it's all hands on deck, and it may be that many of the physicians are, are drawn into the inpatient setting, and that's really where the, the um, uh, advanced practice professionals can be incredibly helpful, uh, not only what they're doing regularly day to day, but helping um, uh, you know, pick up for where, where maybe the physicians are drawn into the, more of the acute care setting, um, so they can be incredible lifelines. And we're going to talk a little bit, I know, about physical activity and lifestyle things, and you know they're, they're, they're incredibly skilled at helping with those facets as well. Um, so, so I, I think that, that really, if we, if we think about leveraging the team, there's, there's one last component. I think about our nutritionist, the you know, one thing that's been fun with telehealth, our nutritionist continues in our new patient visits to see our patients via telehealth. And, and it's actually been better because they're with the whole family. Now they're, they're not just, you know, when the patient comes to the office, they're talking to children, they're, they're, they're seeing what they have in the house. So, you know, again, our, our nutritionists are, 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 integrals, particularly as we think about the changes to lifestyle habits, um, so so I think there's, there's really an expanded role and, and it's all hands on deck. Um, and again, I think we'll learn new models of care around that. You know, I, I've touched on this a bit in what I just mentioned about this idea of, of changes in patterns to physical activity and nutrition. We're all talking about physical or social distancing and, you know, we're working from home and our kids are all running around or different things. And this certainly has implications for lifestyle habits. I think some good, some bad. And I'm, I'm, I know you're, you're someone who's really... Not only talks the talk but walks the walk when it comes to physical activity and lifestyle. What do you think is happening? Is, is Are there some good and some bad? And what are some suggestions to preserve lifestyle habits and sort of this, um, you know, physical uh, distancing work from home type environments?
1: Yeah, you know, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, one of the key implications of this current crisis and social distancing is that staying at home can for many reduce exercise and mobility options and therefore decrease physical activity. And you know, we've seen the data from things like Bitbit and, you know, step counts and activity counts are down. And I think largely all these recommendations to stay at home is sort of lack guidance on the importance of maintaining a healthy lifestyle while at home. And you know, I think adults and children alike are glued to their computers and phones and effort to stay connected with the world. And unfortunately that means skyrocketing screen time. But there are things that can be done both for ourselves and for our patients while, you know, we're at home. I mean, uh, many uh, government policies still allow for daily exercise outside if it can be done within safe social distancing. So I do encourage my patients to get out, do a walk in their neighborhood. Um, some fresh air and some sunlight is, is really good for the body and for the soul. Um, but even if constraints, um, you know, uh, mandate that one has to stay inside for exercise, there's actually a lot of group exercise classes available online. You know, there's previously recorded videos or there's actually real-time live classes that people can join where you can engage in others. Uh, you know, good to have a virtual workout buddy to help stay committed to daily exercise goals. I think at uncertain times, it helps to add a little routine and structure to one's life. So a daily exercise routine and um, tracking step counts. There's a lot of smartphones and devices can track activity um, to help you know, keep people accountable to staying active. And I, you know spending more time at home, I think is a great opportunity to get the whole family involved in exercise, educate children about the importance of regular activity, and hopefully introduce exercise as part of a joyful routine that you know, should be maintained once these outdoor restrictions have been lifted. But in addition, to activity. You know, I also want to mention the challenges to healthy nutrition in the era of COVID. Um, you know, we're under a lot of stress, and perceived stress can trigger unhealthy eating patterns, um, unhealthy food choices from emotional eating. And with social distancing, it can be harder to get trips to the grocery store. And you know a lot of the healthier foods like fruits and vegetables. You know, have shorter um, shelf lives; they're more perishable. But that being said, I think with thoughtful planning, um, many healthy products can still be purchased for the once a week trip to the store to kind of plan out healthy meals for the week. And, you know, we can give advice to our patients on low cost, high nutritious foods that can be purchased that are less perishable or non-perishable. Some good options are low sodium um, canned vegetables and beans, legumes, um, frozen fruits, they don't have any added sugars, oatmeals and whole grains. You know dried or canned beans and nuts are a really good source of plant-based protein and fiber with a long um, shelf life. And then lastly, in addition to exercise and nutrition, I just want to important you know uh, put a plug in for the importance of you know mental health and stress managing. You know social distancing shouldn't necessarily mean social isolation. you know this impact of this crisis can, understandably increase stress and depression and anxiety. Um, and this can exacerbate uh, existing medical conditions. So I encourage my patients and all of us to remain connected, um, to use the telephone and other technology to stay in communication with family and friends, um, to create routine, focus on getting good adequate sleep. Um, and I suggest not uh, having any screen time or watching news within you know an hour before bedtime to really been able to try to promote better quality sleep. And to, you know, now is a good time to start looking into things like meditation, yoga, mindful breathing. I mean, yoga specifically has uh, been shown to be beneficial in reducing anxiety and depression. Um, and it might be something that more of us need to adopt during these difficult times. And of course, um, limiting use of alcohol uh, and avoiding tobacco and not resorting to unhealthy coping uh, behaviors. So I think that there are some, um, we're having more time at home, so I think there is more time actually to, to do things like cooking as a family and exercising as a family. So again, I think there are some silver linings, but there's obviously a lot of challenges. Along those lines, I, talking about physical activity, uh, one of the things that have been um, you know, you know, impacted by the crisis is cardiac rehab programs being closed currently. I know one of my patients, right before we started canceling uh, elective uh, cardiac surgeries, just had a bypass surgery, but now isn't able to go to any um, in-person cardiac rehab programs. Um, So what are some options for our patients to uh, continue cardiac rehab during this COVID-19 pandemic?
0: Yeah, you know, listen, you you certainly brought up a, a critical point here because we already had a a challenging issue with cardiac rehab and we know it's it's way underutilized you know uh, even prior to covid in medicare patients that you know have myocardial infarction something like only 20 to 30 percent end up participating in cardiac rehab so it was already well underutilized and the irony there is that you know it's, it's one of the most cost-effective uh, uh treatments we have it it results in a 30 to 50 percent reduction in uh, major arthroscratic cardiovascular events based on uh, randomized data so very very important and impactful program and now in the current era one of the challenges as you can as you know well there's there's really unfortunately no way to do face-to-face in-person cardiac rehab i i don't know of any centers that are currently open um, uh, because it's almost impossible to keep patients safe and as you started with these are the ones that are more vulnerable um, to COVID. so it's sort of a double whammy there where they're vulnerable and now they really can't be in physical proximity, kind of exercising uh, next to each other. You and I talked about this before uh, at another juncture, but one of my colleagues reminds us that we're talking about six feet, but if you're increasing your you know, your respiratory volume and so forth, that, that may not even be far enough. Um, so, so it may even need to be further. So this is a major challenge and that patients cannot participate currently. And this is a big problem because most people that need to participate are doing so after a, a myocardial infarction, um, revascularization. That's a vulnerable period where they can really make an impact on their health. So, you know, what do we do about that? The good news is there's been a lot of work previously on home-based cardiac rehabilitation. There's programs available, some proprietary programs, and they have reasonable literature um, in terms of their, uh, what, how they can be helpful. There's some uh, uh, statements that have been made by different organizations about uh, some consensus documents about it being a viable option for low and moderate risk patients, probably not for your highest risk patients, you know, there's the exercise component where, again, many of these innovative programs um, have Bluetooth coupling where they can uh, monitor physical activity. As we all know, cardiac rehab is not just exercise. It's also comprehensive risk reduction with nutrition, counseling, learning about um, cardiovascular disease, many of the things that we talked about. So, you know, those educational aspects can still proceed. Patients can still be given um, some recommendations about lifestyle habits. I've heard from many of my colleagues around the country that are continuing to share um, uh, classes, online education work, that can continue, no question, via telemedicine. The the exercise is a little bit trickier, and I think that's where people are getting a little stuck. Again, there are some options. One of the barriers, I should say, in terms of potential solutions is home-based cardiac rehab has not traditionally been reimbursed. That's been a barrier. We know Medicare has done some emergency measures related to telehealth, and we really need those emergency medicines related to reimbursement for Uh, telecardiac rehab, if you will, so that we can uh, continue that in some capacity. So that's something people, I know groups are lobbying for that now, and I think that would be an important advance if that could be made available. So at the very least, we should continue educational efforts and engagement with our patients with cardiac rehab, even with the same frequency as before. We can encourage um, walking and other activities at home. We'll need to work towards reimbursement and advancing some of these other home-based exercise components as well. So, you know, listen, I, I, I I really am glad that this topic is covered. I I have some anxiety about what's happening to all of our patients out there that um, have maybe getting lost in the shuffle when they're in the outpatient land that hasn't been the focus, understandably. And we need to refocus on them. And it's not either or. We have to continue the inpatient management, but we need to also, you know, think about the outpatients. And so I'm going to come back to you. I think we covered a lot of ground today. And um, maybe you can tell us the key takeaways of, of, of some of the things that we covered today.
1: Yes, well, thank you. Well, you know, we certainly don't know this for sure, but I certainly think it's likely that the significant morbidity and impact of COVID-19 related mortality, you know, would have been lessened with a greater focus and investment in population health and prevention of cardiovascular disease and its risk factors. And so I think going forward, we need to invest even more in essential services like cardiovascular prevention and public health initiatives And you brought up the significant disparities um, related to social determinants of health. This was here before pre-COVID, and this has just even um, become more manifest in the COVID era, uh, the high mortality rates that we're seeing among minority groups. And so I hope post-COVID that we're in a better place to have meaningful discussions and action plans to achieve health equity for all. And you know, I think that while this pandemic has highlighted really how fragile uh, the state of human beings are and our current health crisis, our healthcare infrastructure, it's also demonstrated that you know we can rise to do extraordinary things to tackle urgent health crises. And if we can use that same determination that we've all mobilized to fight uh, COVID nineteen, if we can use that um, determination, resilience, innovation to tackle the pandemics of you know, obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Um, you know, I think this will ultimately hopefully improve uh, the health of, of our population going forward.
0: Hey, well, thank you. I really enjoyed doing the podcast with you today. And um, I know I always learn a lot in chatting with you. So thank you for, uh, for, for allowing me to participate with you. Thank you. Well, I thought those were also very inspirational comments you made, uh, Aaron. And I, I want to remind people that um, there's many more in this series. Uh, people should return online to AHA Professional Heart Daily, so we'll call that PhD, uh, for some more podcasts in this series, um, which include COVID-19 and stroke, diabetes, pulmonary hypertension, and other concurrent cardiovascular diseases at this time of healthcare disruption. So please do tune in. I think you'll enjoy all the um, series of this podcast. And- Hopefully, they'll continue to be informative and, and your practices. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. For more information, please visit us at professional.heart.org.